You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm with um, a bunch of my friends, the faculty of the Lupus uh, cohort here for RoomNow. Anyways, we are very excited to talk to you about day two of the ACR 2021 Convergence. I have here Dr. Janet Pope, Dr. Yuz Yusuf, Dr. Pete Castillo, Sheila Reyes, Dr. Sheila Reyes and Dr. Bella Mehta. So we are so excited to share with you some of the things that we learned. Um, so today, you know, the session opened up with um, quite a lot of information. And um, from the Philip Hench lecture to the plenary sessions, um, I'm just going to throw this out there to the whole group. What has really caught your interest? What do you think that the audience should know? Let's start with you, Janet. Well, I think on the plenaries, um, if, if you're on hydroxychloroquine, don't stop it because you do better being on it. And that could be an adherence thing as well as obviously the drug works. If you take it, if you, if you lower it or stop, it's not a good idea. And uh, that was Sasha Brunatsky looking at a very large uh, group of patients. And I found that that is helpful when I'm trying to talk more about adherence to the patients. Well, one question I had about that was, you know, lupus is a chronic disease. It's kind of like hypertension. If you're going to stop the medicine, the disease is going to come back. So is it possible that in patients who've been on it long term, they're worried about retinopathy risk? Should we just substitute it? I mean, what do you think about that, Pete? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if, um, if, if they're concerned about that, but I think that what I tell most of my patients is that as long as they're doing their routine screening, sometimes that's once a year, sometimes that's even every six months with their ophthalmologist, that the uh, progression of the retinopathy typically will stop once they stop the medication. And so it's, um, it, it's concerning. I mean, it's hard to hear that you might go blind from a medication, but I try to just encourage them to continue to follow up with their ophthalmologist. Uh, and just provide them some reassurance that if we get to that point where we need to stop it, that's when we should change it. I don't think that we should necessarily um, uh, change it based off the fear right away. Of course, it's up to the patient at the end of the day, uh, but I would make every effort to try to keep them on it, just given the, the um, significant, I mean, um, help from, from hydroxychloroquine. I think like the last year, sorry, yeah. uh, I, I think the last year, I'd, we've always considered hydroxychloroquine super safe. Uh, you know, as long as you monitor and whatnot. But I think in the last year with the COVID and, you know, all the um, sort of press around hydroxychloroquine, uh, I see that a lot of patients are suddenly more concerned about it uh, than they were previously. And I think uh, we just need to reiterate that, that as long as we monitor you and things are okay, there's no reason to stop it just for concerns. If, if a patient is in remission for long-term, yes, you want to probably think about decreasing in the dose, slowly tapering it. Uh, but um, there's no, I mean, there's no sudden new concern about it. There's no new signal. There's no new data saying there's a problem with it. Well, you opened up a can of worms, Bella, because, you know, there's quite a few abstracts about hydroxychloroquine and lupus, you know, some cardiovascular risk. Um, there was this one study, it's a very large um, RA study that looked at hydroxychloroquine can increase the risk of congestive heart failure. I mean, even if in patients who don't necessarily have underlying cardiac disease, but then there's a, a study, a lupus cohort that shows that there's really no increased cardiovascular risk. 
So I think that the hydroxychloroquine story, you know, it's going to continue to evolve as we identify the safety. So Sheila, what else did you learn this morning? Okay, so um, I got into looking um, at the posters and I think one of um, the posters that was more relevant, especially now, is that of the um, how lupus patients um, get their information. Um, hang on, sorry, that was an alarm. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, yeah, going back, so um, they looked into, um, it's the group by um, Dr. Francesca, Francesca Cardwell, where, um, so they looked into how lupus patients would use or the use of health information um, before and during the COVID um, during the COVID pandemic, and it's reassuring that um, the most um, so the most frequent um, access to information is still from the lupus specialists and from family physicians, although they saw in their results that because of the pandemic. Um, the access to information by the um, specialists and the family physicians um, decreased. And they noted that um, prior, compared to the, before the pandemic, um, social media and um, news um, increased in, in utilization um, and getting information of these patients. So uh, it, it's really important that as physicians, we still continue with the challenge of battling mis and disinformation um, because essentially it's it's us who the patients or we we should provide we, we should provide the right information or we should direct our patients to getting the right information. And I think social media has been tricky, right? There's a lot of our patients consuming content from social media. Um, and uh, there's it's tricky because sometimes there's a lot of misinformation out there. So uh, you at least want them want to direct them to the right social media sites too. So that's why we're covering um, the ACR meeting at room with room now, right? We want to disseminate really good information. Yus, what have you learned this morning? What what's excited you and maybe impact your practice? So um, I was uh, really excited to um, listen to um, you know Dr. Peggy Crow. Um, you know, uh, which she did a wonderful job in forty five minutes to give a tour de force from you know discovery of LE cells. Uh, and then after that, you know, to the breakthrough in understanding lupus pathogenesis. I mean, the traditional ways, we always thought that, you know, the, the B cells is the main player producing antibodies, therefore we should all target B cells. But, you know, recently, um, more emphasis on the innate immunity as well. Um, so I think, and it's quite interesting um, to know what uh, she summarized, you know, um, the you know, the inability uh, to clear this debris or apoptotic cells and, and nucleic acids. So that's actually could trigger and cascade, you know, um, you know the, the, the lupus uh, itself and also flare up. And, and what they found, um, you know, there's quite a few um, sources that potentially uh, could lead uh, to this um, you know, abundance of nucleic acids, including one is genetic elements, uh, let's call it endogenous retro elements. 
Um, secondary mitochondria, which has been, you know, was presented recently in the year in review, uh, you know, by a Virginia Pascal team, uh, and also, uh, you know, potentially like netosis as well. So, you know, the, the squad is a lot of breakthrough in terms of understanding, which could, you know, help us in terms of trying to target the appropriate targets for our lupus patient. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And she made it in such, she made the presentation in such a way it was so easy to understand. Um, the one thing that struck me was the fact that she was talking about, you know, interferon and the gene signature, how you can predict flares or see that the signal increase parallel to flares. So that, I mean, it's going to be a powerful tool, um, particularly in the future. And so um, there were a couple of abstracts in the plenary that I thought was just like really outstanding. And, and I understood why they were chosen for the plenary. Um, one is actually vitamin D and omega-3. Can it prevent autoimmune disease? Anybody want to talk about that? Do you take it? <laughs> I'm going to start. I, I sometimes do a handful of vitamin D now and then. It's funny because already the tweeting between uh, Room Now and ACR ambassadors are people are calling it a negative study. I, I tweeted it as a positive. So bottom line, 25,000 individuals um, over the age of 50 and given 2,000 units of vitamin D or placebo and also factorial design. So re like randomized as well in each of those two groups of omega-3 yes versus no. So four groups in the end. And um, vitamin D was positive on decreasing autoimmune diseases. Of course, the incidence of autoimmune diseases was low. So it's really, you start differentiating the curves early, but they become statistically significant, um, you know, around five years or more. Omega-3, numerically less autoimmune diseases, not statistically. And interestingly, no interaction term between the two. But I do think we, we have benefit of omega-3, such as an early RA, uh, Susanna Proudman and others have shown an early RA added to standard of care, high, high dose, mind you, omega-3, 6 um, fatty acid sub, um, uh, supplements will actually improve your RA, but it's added to standard of care, of course. So I think there isn't really a downside. Um, maybe we should buy stock in um, natural, natural substances like this. Yeah, and especially since lupus patients, you know, can't go outside in the sun. Um, and the question is, can it impact also disease activity? Now, the study only looked at patients who were older. I mean, could we alter the immune system, you know, when we use it for patients who are younger and perhaps maybe at increased risk, like patients with family history? I, I just thought that it was fascinating, very, very provocative is what right, I thought. Right. And there are, there's two RCTs in kitties with lupus taking vitamin D where it helps fatigue, but might might help disease activity. And Michelle Petrie and others have published case series in adults with lupus where it seems to help. And I know it because we're doing an RCT in systemic sclerosis on fatigue and vitamin D single-blinded. So I kind of have read around the literature. So I don't think there's a downside of vitamin D if you're um, in general, if your kidneys and your liver works and you'd have to give a lot, even if they had kidney failure or liver failure to make you toxic. Right. Just to add, but sometimes uh, studies with vitamin D is, is quite difficult to um, interpret you know, their results because you know, how sure whether the patient take this vitamin D like daily as they report it, or maybe if they give it a booster dose, probably that's more slightly reliable. And there's also a lot of like noises. You've got a lot of like confounding factors. So I think 
you just have to interpret it with cautions right yeah. yeah i i think i i have another take on this i feel like it's not i wouldn't put a lot of money on it yes you know vitamin d you should make sure that they are at level but um you know the the confidence intervals or something like they were like 0.96 0.98 some of them um is it significant statistically yes would it make a huge difference i don't know i wouldn't put a lot of money on vitamin d and that's just my personal thought so what about you sheila would you take it seeing that it's 1:30 a.m. in your time zone <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well for me like um like janet uh i think it it's in a good uh, i think it's a positive um it's a positive study and maybe who knows um because of because of what they started additional um studies would would still grow from it um but yeah me me i give my patients vitamin d um especially here in in our in in my country um even if it's a tropical country um we still see lots of vitamin d deficiency maybe not just um with regard to autoimmune disease but um vitamin d deficiency in it in itself is really a problem so so yeah um i guess nothing will be lost if we give it just as long as it's within the the normal um dose and we regularly monitor and there are really no contraindications for giving the the vitamin d and um omega 3 supplement Now we only have a few minutes left so I'm just going to close out this session by just having everybody go around and tell me what um abstract that you found fascinating and and might potentially impact people's practice. So Pete, you want to go ahead and start? Sure. Uh so I was going over a, a poster from yesterday and actually I'm uh, eager to see a poster for tomorrow. The poster from yesterday was abstract 353 and it had to do with urinary uh ALCAM or ALCAM. Uh in this uh, poster they had presented that previously they had shown I believe the same group that urinary ALCAM can be a biomarker for lupus nephritis. And in this study uh they showed that it actually uh urinary ALCAM Uh, followed or trended with uh, renal sleed eye as well as urine protein creatinine ratio and so it may actually serve as a marker for disease activity as opposed to just a marker of the presence of disease and then tomorrow there's an abstract um 1422 that has to do with a quote unquote uh, liquid biopsy is uh, and so that's an interesting thing i think bella was uh, interested in in that if i'm not mistaken uh, but i'm eager to to see that and compare that with this uh, study what about you bella i think um i liked there was a bunch of disparity abstracts uh, this morning which were interesting uh, discussing um, how we uh, need to um, take care of our vulnerable lupus patients and one of the abstract that stood out was multimorbidity in male lupus patients and again i feel like male lupus patients aren't that much talked about and that and they still they are they one of the sickest ones uh, and uh, we need to take care of them much better sheila so um i'll probably just shift a bit because i really um the the rheumatology clinical pearls um was the the session was really um interesting and highly informative so i guess um the the pearl there including um that of the 
uh, oral lesions in lupus where um, the myth is that it, it's painful, but most of the time it's really painless. And, um, you know, um, clinical pearls like this can really um, help with, with practice. And um, I think additional would be the CRP, the CRP levels, where if it's really elevated in lupus, it's not really a flare, but consider an infection first. So um, I think those are important points that I learned apart from the, the good um, posters that were presented today. What about you, use? Yeah, so just um, a, a poster um, that I saw today. So I think we all talk about you know, adults. <laughs> I'm just going to move slightly about the, <laughs> the children. Um, so just talking um, in relation to disparity, I think there's one uh, abstract that were presented. Um, so they showed uh, the, the divide you know, these children, um, you know, from four uh, quartiles of economic backgrounds. Um, so then they uh, look into... Um, the, the outcome was um, the duration of hospitalization due to flare-up of lupus. Um, so what they found, um, interestingly, um, you know, people who have who were in the lowest in the quartile, like the third and fourth, um, they actually, um, you know, there's no significant difference between them and the first quartile. However, the people in second quartile, so they tend to have the longest hospitalization, you know, duration. So you know, so it may be like now a lot of like shift trying to improve disparity in the lowest quartile. However, the second one seems to be forgotten. So they're stuck in the middle, so they're not really getting much support or they can't quite cope with the injury themselves. So I think we need to really try to make everything equalized in all income levels, really. So I think that's important. Right. I'm going to round it out with you, Janet. Okay, just quickly, um, a shout out to um, uh, poster 0865. And the bottom line is, if the patients with lupus and over 4,000 patients, if they're in uh, low uh, lupus disease activity state or in remission, and they call it clinical remission on treatment, um, there's far less mortality. That's kind of intuitive, but it's the first time it's really been shown in a large group that um, I could say treating to a target matters, but at least patients who do well live better and longer. And then there was one about uh, hydroxychloroquine um, that the actual um, dose milligram per kilogram, um, you will have less cardiovascular toxicity since we talked about it earlier including less life-threatening arrhythmia and less cardiovascular events if you're on higher dose hydroxychloroquine. And that was uh, 0871, but that was only a non-smoker. So I wonder if smoking is such a major risk factor for cardiac events that it attenuates um, any benefit of Plaquenil anyway. And also there's a drug-drug interaction or a smoking uh, hydroxychloroquine interaction. So I thought both were pretty interesting. Now, these are all fascinating. And um, I'm going to round it out with some good news, which is today's plenary abstract 0956, where it shows that the trend for poor adverse renal outcomes in hospitalized children with lupus had actually decreased over the last five years. Um, but there's still a disparity, disparity gap between Black patients and white patients. And we need to focus not just on clinical care and improving outcomes, but we have to think about other factors that could contribute um, to this. So like socioeconomic factors, being able to access care even. So um, this is our reporting day two for lupus. <clears throat> I wanna thank the faculty. Keep following us on Room Now. Have a great day.